Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Message this morning will come from Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. These are the words of God. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. God, our Father, we come with joy to your presence and to the presence of your word, desiring to hear from you, desiring to hear words from you conveyed by the Spirit to build us up, make us strong, to fill us with your joy and your love, that we might be to your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse, much of which is prophecy. And last week we saw that God has one true people throughout history. And that God's one true people are based on one heritage of God's promises and have one destiny and fulfillment of those promises. And as Paul tells us in Galatians, the way to picture the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is not as two different persons, but as a single person in two stages of development. The Old Testament being when the heir is a child and under tutors and guardians and the New Testament being when the heir has come of age and inherited the kingdom. So Israel and the church are not two different peoples of God, but one historic people of God in two stages of maturity. Now today we take up the issue of the kingdom, which is what God's people inherit from the Father. And this is the way the Bible continually speaks. In Daniel's famous vision of the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days, and receiving a kingdom and everlasting dominion that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, it also says this, that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. You can read that in Daniel chapter 7. So the picture we get here is that Jesus is the heir. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. But all those who believe in him, all those who are united to him by faith in the Spirit, become one with him, so that all that is his becomes theirs. So they become the seed of Abraham. They become the heirs of the promises of God. And as Jesus, the Son of Man, inherits the kingdom, so we, as those united to him, also inherit and possess the kingdom. It is our inheritance from the Father through Christ Jesus. And so Jesus in Matthew 25, which is part of the Olivet Discourse, will say to his disciples, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And Paul in his epistles repeatedly speaks in terms of who does and does not inherit the kingdom. In other words, who is really in Christ, who is united to him, and who is not. So today, when we come to this issue of the kingdom, I want to focus on three very basic questions. When does the kingdom come? What does the kingdom include? And how does the kingdom conquer? 
When does the kingdom come? What does the kingdom include? And how does the kingdom conquer? Now regarding those questions, Christians throughout history and still today, perhaps I should say especially today, have had a lot of confusion and different understandings. And many Christians just throw up their hands and say, I believe whatever the Bible says. I just wish I knew what the Bible says, because sometimes it seems to say one thing, and sometimes it seems to say another. And so before we start answering our three questions, I want to talk about how we answer those questions. For the Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. It's one of the major themes of the Bible, and not all that the Bible says about the kingdom of God is easy to understand. And so to help us sort things out, I want to suggest a certain approach based on two principles. Number one, focus on the big picture first. Some Bible passages give us the wide-angle view, and some give us the close-up view. Some Bible passages show us the forest, and others show us the trees. Some Bible passages spread out the map before us and give us the mountaintop view, Others give us close-up, detailed view. The first thing we need to do when we come to a vast topic like this is to get oriented. And so we want to focus on the forest over the trees. We want to focus on the big picture first and then interpret the zoom-in close-up shots in light of the big picture rather than the other way around. Second principle, focus on straightforward passages First, some Bible passages speak in straightforward language and some speak in symbolic or apocalyptic language. And obviously the former are easier to understand than the latter. And so we want to start with the easy to understand passages and interpret the hard to understand passages in light of them rather than the other way around. Now these two principles are just common sense. This is the way that we would approach any difficult topic discussed in various ways in any large body of literature. But you would be amazed at how much confusion and error have resulted from not following these basic principles. So, we want to focus on big picture first and on straightforward passages first. And that means that our ideal Bible passages are going to be ones that deal with the big picture in straightforward languages. And then based on those passages, we want to locate our corner stakes, so to speak. The first passage I want us to look at is our sermon text, Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now here, Paul makes three big picture assertions in straightforward language. Number one, the Father has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. Number two, the Father has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of of the Son. Number three, in the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, what is Paul doing here? 
Paul is speaking to brand new Gentile Christians living in the first century. And he is describing to them salvation and conversion. He is telling them what has happened to them. What has happened to them now that they have come to faith in Christ? What does it mean? He is saying, this is what's happened to you. Here is why you are saved. Here is what salvation means. Here is what it means to be a Christian. First, you have inherited. The Father has qualified us, past tense, has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. Second, accordingly, you have been delivered, past tense, from the power of darkness and conveyed, past tense, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Third, you have been redeemed through His blood. That is, you have received forgiveness of sins. Now notice that Paul ties these three things together. You either have them all or you have none. Now this is a problem for evangelicals because All evangelicals would agree that we have, present tense, forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood. But most evangelicals would say that inheriting and entering the kingdom awaits some point still in the future. Most evangelicals would say to the Colossians in the first century, you have received redemption, you have received the forgiveness of sins through Christ's blood, but inheriting... And being delivered from darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That waits a time in the future at least 2,000 years off. But Paul doesn't give us that liberty. He doesn't give us the ability to divide those things up. We either have all three or we have none. And so I have a question for you, evangelical. Are your sins forgiven by the blood of Christ? Say yes. Say yes. All right. That means you have been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. Coming to Christ at all is a matter of being conveyed into his kingdom. If Christ's kingdom has not begun, then your sins are not forgiven. And you are not saved. Now notice here, I am not saying, this does not mean that you aren't saved if you don't understand and believe that you are in the kingdom. It means that you aren't saved if you aren't in fact in the kingdom. There are millions of Christians today who are in fact in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, but do not understand or believe that fact. And praise be to God that our salvation does not depend upon us mastering all these theological truths. It depends upon these theological truths mastering us. So we do have one corner stake here, and that is this. To be a Christian, to be forgiven, to be saved, means to be delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. And that could hardly be true if the kingdom has not begun. 2,000 years ago, Paul said to new Gentile converts, you have been delivered from the power of darkness. You have been conveyed into the kingdom of the Son. And that fits perfectly with the preaching of Jesus and John the Baptist. From the beginning, what was the theme of John's preaching? Repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand. It's not off in the distance. It's not 2,000 years hence. It's not even an arm's length away. It's at hand. It's right here. It's about to happen. And that's also what Jesus preached after his baptism. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist had it right. The kingdom is right here. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. He's saying this is happening in your lifetimes. He said that to our forefathers in the faith 2,000 years ago. The second passage I want us to look at is 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now again, we have the big picture presented here in straightforward language. And this is one of the greatest passages because it takes us all the way from Christ's resurrection in the first century until the final resurrection on the last day. That's big picture. And note what this passage tells us. And, now, and again, it's straightforward language. There's no apocalyptic language here. There's no symbolic language here. So what does this passage tell us? <clears throat> Number one, Christ's return, which is here called his coming, is when the final resurrection occurs, verse 23. There is no room here for a rapture and then the final resurrection put off for another thousand years at least. Number two, Christ's return and the final resurrection signal the end. That's verse 24. The end of what? Well, the end of the kingdom. What is the end of the kingdom? It tells us it is when Christ delivers the kingdom up to the Father and puts an end to all rule and authority. Verse 24. So the return of Christ comes at the end of the kingdom, not at its beginning. The return of Christ and the final resurrection come when the kingdom is perfected, not when it is inaugurated. It comes when Jesus delivers up the kingdom to the Father. That means that the kingdom was inaugurated some time before. Number three, the time between Christ's resurrection and his return, his delivering up of the kingdom to the Father, is a time when Jesus is putting all enemies under his feet. Verse 25, the kingdom doesn't start after Jesus has put all enemies under his feet. The kingdom is precisely the reign of Jesus during which he puts his enemies under his feet. Verse 25, when he returns is when he puts down the last enemy, which is death itself. Verse 26, this process of putting his enemies under his feet is what is described in Psalm 110, 
as making his enemies a footstool for his feet. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. <clears throat> now, we do not have time to go into this in detail, but let me quickly say that the Lord's footstool is something that is spoken of in the Old Testament and is identified as being part of the tabernacle. The Lord's footstool was also known as the mercy seat, which was the golden slab on top of the Ark of the Covenant, <clears throat> where also the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement. God's footstool is God's mercy seat. It is also the place where God's people are said to worship Him. This means... That for Jesus' enemies to be made his footstool is for his enemies to be made his worshipers. This is not talking about a military conquest. This is talking about a conquest of the gospel by the Spirit. Jesus putting his enemies under his feet is what the Great Commission is talking about. Often when we hear about his enemies being made his footstool and so forth, we get a picture of a military conquest. We get the picture of a jackboot and somebody being stomped on. <clears throat> That's not the picture. The picture is Jesus' enemies being made his worshipers. That brings us to the third passage I want to talk about, and that is Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. Another parable Jesus put forth to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal until it was all leavened. Here we have another big picture passage speaking to how the kingdom grows, how the kingdom, kingdom conquers. And he speaks in straightforward language. Now here Jesus makes clear that the kingdom of God does not enter the world with a bang and change everything instantly. Jesus says the kingdom enters the world very small and apparently insignificant and apparently weak, presenting no apparent threat to the world order of Satan and fallen man. But the kingdom isn't weak. It's weak in the weapons of fallen humanity. It's weak in selfish ambition. It's weak in envy and slander and manipulativeness. It's weak in ulterior motives. It's weak in political coups and military subjugation. And it's weak in all forms of enslavement which have been the uniform story of fallen mankind. The kingdom of God is weak in terms of those weapons and in terms of that warfare. But it is good to be weak in that because that has been the story of mankind since the fall. And the problem with all of that kind of strength is that it's not strong enough to ever change anything. It's a ceaseless cycle of slavery parading as freedom. But the kingdom is strong in the weaponry of the spirit. The only weaponry that can actually break the cycle of human self-enslavement and actually change people from the inside out. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive 
to the obedience of Christ. All the weapons of man can never change the heart. All the weapons of man cannot change what somebody thinks. All the weapons of man can never change somebody's instinctive reactions. All the weapons of man can never change it so that our instinctive reactions stop being, being me first. All the weapons of man can never stop that little voice in yourself that whatever happens, whenever something good happens to one of your friends and it doesn't happen to you, that little voice that says to you, what about me? All the weapons of fallen humanity can never change that. But the weaponry of the kingdom of God changes that. So Christ's kingdom changes people from the inside out. And so it doesn't stay small. It starts small, but it doesn't stay small. It's apparently insignificant, but it's not insignificant. It's very significant. It's like a mustard seed. You can hardly see it. What difference can that make, plant it and see? Over time, it will cast its shade and its shadow and its protection over the entire garden. It will become a tree. The kingdom is like leaven. What can a pinch of leaven do? Put it in and watch. It doesn't stay put. It goes everywhere. It touches everything. It changes everything. It transforms everything. How can a pinch of leaven do that to a huge recipe? Well, I'll tell you, because the recipe is dead, and the leaven is alive. And it moves, and it changes, and it transforms everything. That's the difference. So over time, the kingdom of God changes everything, and it becomes the dominant force holding sway over all the world and over all of mankind. At any given time, someone can point to the kingdom and say, you got to be kidding me. But when all is said and done, all anyone will be able to say is, wow, that and praise God. This is the big picture in straightforward language. Now, I want to point out the three terms that are typically used to understand the kingdom. And those terms are premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. And these terms are fine in and of themselves. I don't like these terms the way that we use them because they cause a whole bunch of confusion. Because if you talk to Christians about eschatology at all, you're going to be asked, which one are you? Are you premillennial? Are you amillennial? And are you postmillennial? And the reason why I don't like these terms is because they are based on one of the most difficult passages in one of the most difficult books that speaks in symbolic language in the entire scriptures, and that is Revelation chapter 20, which speaks of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Premillennial means that you believe the Lord Jesus Christ returns, okay, second advent, before his millennial reign. Amillennial means that you believe that his millennial reign started uh, already when he was uh, ascended to the right hand of the Father, but it, that it, there's no real true millennium in the sense that it covers and transforms everything. It is a reign that is over the church, over the hearts of believers and over the church only. Postmillennial means that you believe that Jesus Christ re, uh, returns at the end 
of the millennial reign, at the end of his kingdom, after all enemies have been placed under his feet, except for the last enemy, which is death. Now again, I don't like to use these words. I would encourage you to stay away from them as much as you can because they simply cause confusion. People, uh, and they, and t they tend to involve implicitly a reversal of the methodology that we agreed upon is the proper methodology for understanding the kingdom, which is you go to big picture passages first and you go to straightforward language passages first. And then you get the big picture from there, and then you interpret the symbolic language passages and the zoom-in close-up passages in light of the big picture. When we start speaking, a lot of times in terms of premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, we go to one of the most difficult passages in Scripture, in the, one of the most symbolic books in Scripture, in the most Old Testament books of the New Testament, where you have to be really experts in the symbolic apocalyptic language of the Old Testament to understand anything, we go to the most difficult chapter of the most difficult book, we decide what it means, and then we interpret the big picture straightforward passages in terms of that. That is what I call the Rorschach school of biblical hermeneutics. Rorschach being the inkblot test, which is what does it mean to you? And we come to these apocalyptic passages, like, I don't know what it means. What does it mean to you? I don't know. It talks about, it talks about flying scorpions. Must be talking about helicopters. You, have you got a better idea? <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay, that means helicopters. And then we come to the straightforward uh, language passages that talk about the big picture, and they go, well, they can't mean what they seem to say, because we've already decided that flying scorpions means helicopters. It's completely backwards. But I do want you to know those terms because they're the ones that are used. They're the ones that are used. You're liable to hear them, and you're liable to hear people asking you, which one are you? I would urge you, try to stay away from those. Talk about the scriptures. Talk about the big picture passages. Talk about the straightforward passages. We want to stay away from that uh, reversal of methodology. Having said that, Having looked at these three big picture passages today that speak in straightforward language, which one of these views do they teach? Well, in a word, they teach the post-millennial view. They teach that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom like a mustard seed, like leaven, in the first century, so that Paul could say to the Colossians, you have been conveyed into the kingdom. Jesus is saying the kingdom is going to be small, it's going to start there, it's going to look insignificant, it's going to look weak. But I'm telling you, it's not. It's like a mustard seed, and it's like leaven. And that's how it's going to grow. And then Paul says, look, here, let me give you the big picture. Here's the resurrection of Christ in the first century. Here's the resurrection of the just and the damned on the last day when Christ returns. In between is the kingdom. That's when Jesus is in the process of putting his enemies under his feet. That is, making them his worshipers. That is, fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, does that mean that every single last person on the face of the earth is going to be converted on that? Not necessarily, because Jesus also talks about the wheat field and the tares. Right? And I used to play a game with my kids when they were small. 
we'd be driving out here in the country, and there would be a wheat field, and I would say, what's that? What kind of field is that? And my girls would say, that's a wheat field. And I'd say, well, there's a wheat, and there's another one, and there's another one, and I see lots of weeds. And they go, Dad, it's still a wheat field. Exactly. Exactly. It doesn't necessarily mean that every single last person on the face of the earth will be converted, but it does mean that there will be so many converted that you can look out and say, in a true sense of the word, these are Christian nations, it's not just Christian individuals, these are Christian families, these are Christian communities, they honor the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord. That is what the kingdom means, the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, in short, these straightforward passages, given us the big picture, give us a post-millennial view. So how do we answer our three questions then? When does the kingdom come? Answer, it came in the first century. Upon Jesus' ascension into heaven, sitting on the throne of the Father at his right hand, and the pouring out of the Spirit, on Pentecost. That's the leavening of the world. That's the leaven going into the recipe. Jesus has gone to the right hand of the Father. All power and authority has been given to Him. All judgment has been committed into His hands. He pours out the Spirit. The leaven has come in. There's no going back. I don't, you know, it's easy in our day. There are a lot of dark things going on in our day. But the kingdom growth, it's, it's kind of like the stock market, you know. It has a trend line, but it bounces up and down. And you have dark times, and we live in a dark time in our culture. We, we live in a culture that's celebrating turning away from God and turning away from His Word. It's rejoicing in it. But the thing is, is we have to remember, what did the world look like in the first century? What did the world look like when the Spirit was first poured out? What we have to do is we have to live by faith, not by sight. Jesus has put the leaven into the world. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, for the first time ever, a man, a human being, was in heaven, in the presence of God, sitting on his throne, with all power and authority, and all judgment committed to him. And on Pentecost, for the first time ever, since the Garden of Eden, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the earth, upon people, and so you have the flaming tongues of fire, the same glory cloud that would kill you if you came into the tabernacle, into the holiest of holies in the Old Testament, unless you were the high priest on the Day of Atonement with the blood. That same fire, that same holy fire is now dwelling upon all the disciples, all the disciples, and they're not being consumed. They're being filled with God's word. They're being filled with his glory. Heaven changed on that day. The earth changed on that day. It will never be the same. There is no going back. The leaven is in. And it's going to transform everything. Nothing can be done about it. And that's your assurance as Christians. That's your assurance as you take on cultural darkness as you take on opposition, if you take on persecution, if you sit in prison waiting to die for the name of Christ, you can laugh because the leaven has gone in. And there's no turning back. Praise God. Praise God. 
So the kingdom came in the first century. What does the kingdom include? It includes everything. It includes all of life. That's one of the differences between where the, the Amil view is. The Amil view limits the kingdom to the hearts of believers and to the church. It says that's what Christ is concerned with. Hearts of believers in the church. He's not really concerned about the other stuff. He doesn't speak to the world directly. He doesn't speak to society directly. He speaks to the church. So anything we say to the world, the world, reality gets divided up between the spiritual, where Jesus is interested, and the non-spiritual, where he isn't. So anything we say in the public square, any, any truth claims we make, we have to kind of make obliquely as kind of a... Uh, secondary uh, kind of a nuanced application because how can we claim what Jesus isn't claiming? And so life ends up being bifurcated. But it's very interesting. The book of Daniel in the Old Testament which we've already referred to which um, speaks about the kingdom has two great... Uh, we've already talked about Daniel 7, which is the Son of Man coming for the Ancient of Days and receiving the kingdom. The other one is a vision that's given to Nebuchadnezzar, which is a, the kingdom, the great empires of the ancient world, uh, beginning with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it says that in the days of the Roman Empire, basically, uh, this big statue Nebuchadnezzar sees, the, the, the stone comes in and strikes it on the feet. And the feet are ident uh, identified as being the Roman Empire. So this little stone comes in, and the stone begins to grow. And it grows and it grows and it grows until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole world. And it grinds to powder and to chaff the kingdoms of fallen man. Okay, who was that vision given to? Not to Daniel, to Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, an unbeliever. Daniel's chapter 2 through 7 are very different from the rest of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the book of Daniel is written in Hebrew, except for chapters 2 through 7, which are written in Aramaic, the language of the empire. So just who is God announcing this kingdom to? To spiritual people like Daniel? Nope. Hey, Nebi, yo, most powerful man in the world, I got a message for you. You know that God ultimately drives Nebuchadnezzar insane to humble him and brings him back to his sanity. And then Nebuchadnezzar becomes a converted man. He confesses. What does he confess? He says, the God of heaven rules in the affairs of men. And there is no one who can stay his hand. There is no one who can say to him, what are you doing? He is able to put down the proud and lift up the humble. Nebuchadnezzar makes the first great Gentile kingly confession of the lordship of Christ. That's what the kingdom is about, and that is its effect. So it includes all of life. It's not pushed off into the future. It's not divided up into a segmented, compartmentalized part of life. The effect of those two teachings, premillennial, amillennial, is what? Not now, not here. That's the effect. 
That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches here, yes, now, yes. Everywhere, everything. And the effect of the kingdom is to restore all of God's original glorious intentions for mankind of the earth. It's not to achieve a stalemate with Satan. During which time Jesus trades Satan down, taking a few of his pieces, taking a few of his pawns, and smuggling them across the border to heaven where Jesus has some real power. That's not the kingdom. It is a victory. It's not a victory in eternity, in heaven. It's a victory in history, on the earth, and in eternity, and in heaven. Third question, how does the kingdom conquer? It conquers through spiritual weaponry. It conquers through the gospel. It conquers through the preached word. Resulting in changed heart, changed families, changed churches, changed communities, changed nations, and a changed world. Now this is different from the liberal 20th century theology, which denied the virgin birth, denied the atoning death, denied the resurrection, denied the ascension, denied the supernatural, and taught a humanistic version of postmillennialism, that in every day and in every way, man is getting better and better. And through technology and education and environmental change, we, being the good, good people that we are, are going to make the world into an idyllic society. And that's what the Bible is talking about in the kingdom of God. That was a hijacking of what the Bible actually teaches. That was a hijacking of the kingdom of God, turning it into a new version, just a new suit of clothes for the same old fallen kingdom of man that has been ruling ever since the fall. Putting on a new suit of clothes doesn't change a pig from being a pig. Still a pig. No. The kingdom of God that the Bible teaches is won by the Spirit. It's won by uh, transformation of the Spirit. The kingdom advances ultimately one person at a time, hearts being regenerated, turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in him and being discipled so what, so what Peter says he says first Peter he says that Noah's flood was a baptism that's the type he says and the antitype not meaning anti against but anti answering the reality of which Noah's flood was a type he says is Christian baptism Right. Now, what does that mean? Because in the Bible, always the type is the lesser, and the reality, the antitype, is the greater. Now, we understand the greatness of Noah's flood. It's like water everywhere. Water everywhere. Peter says, Christian baptism, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One person is more powerful will have more earth-changing effect than Noah's flood. What Peter is saying, what the kingdom of God is about, is that God is flooding the world again, one person at a time. And this time, instead of killing people, and just removing the unrighteous from the earth, God is transforming them where they stand. 
That's what the kingdom's about. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.